Well, good morning, church. If you want to open in your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're, we're coming to an end in this book. It's been a challenging but helpful book, I pray, as we study this together. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week in James chapter 5, uh, verse 7. And we'll, Lord willing, look at verses 7 through 12 this morning. I want to start with uh, a simple quiz this morning, all right? Knowing that today is November 8th, what comes next? Thanksgiving or Christmas? Simple question. Thanksgiving, right? That's right. So when it comes to celebrating holidays, I'm a man of principle. You celebrate one holiday at a time. You don't celebrate Christmas until you had your share of Thanksgiving. Turkey and cranberries come before jingle bells. So when my wife suggested that we put a Christmas tree up early during dinner this week, I rightly said, no way. But there was a mutiny in the Schlegel household. And my two boys took Katie's side, and I was outnumbered three to one. And right now, there is a Christmas tree in our living room. Now listen, they'll tell you that it's a Thanksgiving tree, but I'll tell you what's really going on. They lack holiday patience. They don't like waiting. And we've had a good laugh teasing each other about who's right about the Christmas tree, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. But sometimes, waiting is not a laughing matter. When you're getting the results from the doctor, when you're waiting for grief to let up, when you're suffering... It's then that waiting can feel unbearable. Hope feels under attack. You ever feel that way? How then can a Christian live with hope in the midst of difficult days? How can we as Christians live with hope, an unshakable hope, In the midst of difficult days. Look with me at James chapter 5 verse 7. This is God's word to us this morning. He says, Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth 
or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, one of the themes that kind of comes to the surface as a main theme here is this idea of the coming of the Lord. It's repeated four times in our text, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and it's alluded to in verse 12. So what James is saying is that in difficult days, we live by hope by looking to the end. We live with hope in difficult days by fixing our attention on the end when Christ will sit on his throne and rule as the judge. Last week we saw in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, the reminder that in the end, God holds the wrongdoer accountable. No one gets away with wrong. And that keeps us then from envying the wicked, and it brings comfort to those who have been wronged. Then when you come to verses 7 through 12, James continues to build on that idea But now, as he looks to the end, his focus is on the positive aspect of the return of Christ. On that day, God will vindicate or reward all who endure to the end. This is what we saw earlier in James 1, verse 12. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, then he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So knowing this, in our, in our grasping for hope in difficult days, knowing this, we must, number one, be patient for the harvest. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Be patient for the harvest, and we'll see that in verses seven through nine. And point number two is this. Be steadfast for the blessing. And that's verses 10 through 12. Point number one, be patient for the harvest. Point number two, be steadfast for the blessing. Verses 10 through 12. That's where we're headed. Let's go back to the text. Look again at verse 7 as James starts to talk about this patience that we need for the harvest. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And so he says here, we need to be patient. We need to wait patiently like the farmer. For those of you who don't know, I grew up in Nebraska, and uh, my uncle is a farmer, so I spent a lot of time working on the farm with my uncle. And I can tell you, farmers work hard. It's a lot of hard work. Tilling the the soil, planting the seed, uh, pulling weeds. There's lots of things that farmers have to do. But for all the hard work that a farmer can do, there's also something they can't do. A farmer cannot make the seed grow. They can yell at the seed They can sweet talk the seed. They can pound their ground, their hands on the ground, trying to get the seed to come up. But no matter what they do, nothing will speed up the process. James knows that, and so he holds them up as an example. And farmers have to be patient. They have to wait. 
Once more, if you go to farming in James Day, there's, there's no irrigation pumps to actually water the fields in a, in a dry season. They, the farmer had to wait for God to bring the rains in the spring and the, in the fall. And if it rained, well, then they had food. But if it didn't rain, there's a chance that they won't have food. They'll go hungry that year. Some years, a farmer would wait and wait and wait for the rains but never see fruit come out of the ground because of a drought. But here's the difference with his illustration. The emphasis in verse 7 is on the fact, the guarantee of Christ's return. He doesn't say maybe Jesus will come. He talks about it as a fact. He will come again. And when he comes, he will reap a harvest. There's no questioning. There's no risk. There's no gamble. He will reap a harvest. And so, knowing that, we are called to be patient. But not forever. We wait until. That's that key word. We wait until the coming of the Lord. Then the the wait is over. God kept his promise to come the first time, 2,000 years ago. Jesus came, he died, he rose again for our salvation. He proved that he is the Son of God. And so because of that, we now can trust him that he will keep his promise to come a second time. Friends, the seed will sprout. And so we wait patiently. But don't mistake waiting for something that is passive. We don't just kind of kick back and do nothing. Waiting is not passive here. Waiting is active. To trust God, James goes on to explain, we must guard our hearts. Look at verse 8. He says, you also be patient. Okay, what do we do when we're waiting? What do we do when we're trusting God? He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I almost don't have to ask this, I think, but let me just ask, how many of you have felt weary during 2020? Anybody? All right. Our weariness as followers of Jesus may come from the pressure of a thousand undetected frustrations that wear you down over time and you're not even aware of it. Or your weakness, your weariness might be because of a massive tragedy, a wave that knocks you down all at once. But whatever it is, James understands that trials leave us feeling weak, leave us feeling weary. And knowing that, James calls us to establish our hearts. If we're going to be patient, we must establish our hearts. Now, the word for establish that he uses here means to strengthen. You could actually translate it, strengthen your heart. Stand firm with a, with a, with a strong heart. But the, the next question, though, is, okay, great. How do we strengthen our hearts? Well, I'll say this. When we're weary, it's easy for us to run to things like, Shortcuts like Netflix or alcohol or pizza or another Amazon purchase. Something that feels good immediately. 
Our hearts all have those things that they run to for immediate relief, but these shortcuts only numb or distract our hearts. They don't have the power to establish or strengthen our hearts like we need. And so like a farmer waiting for the harvest, much of life is outside our control. The economy, our health, an election, a pandemic, the decisions that our kids will make as they grow up, or the decisions that a loved one will make. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. James 5, verse 14. And our lack of control is what leaves us feeling vulnerable, nervous. But the control that we long for, that we want, is beyond our grasp because the control that we want belongs to God alone. And so the, the option is pretty straightforward. We can either be miserable and anxious trying to grasp for that which is beyond our control, or we can learn to trust God. Friend, learn to trust God. Guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. God gives grace. We're commanded to strengthen our hearts, but ultimately God is the one who strengthens our heart. God gives grace, and he gives grace to the humble. So strengthen your heart, church, by coming to God again and again and again. If you have to come to God a thousand times today, then do it. You might come to God, feel strengthened, and five minutes later, you're weak again. Then come to him again. Draw near to God. And his promise in chapter 4, verse 8, is that he will draw near to you. If verse 7 highlights the fact of the Lord's return, verse 8 highlights the nearness of his return. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, some might hear that and scoff. 2 Peter 3 talks about this scoffing. Some will say, <laughs> it's at hand. Yeah, we've been waiting for this return of Christ for 2,000 years. Where's it at? Where is this coming? But what Peter says in chapter 3 is that they overlook this important fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He doesn't see time the way that we do. And what they also miss when they're scoffing at the Lord's delay is that God's delay in his return is his patience. He's affording us the opportunity to hear the good news and receive salvation that is in Christ. But friends, James is telling us the truth. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Christ will come again. That day is near. And that's good news. Because when he comes again, he will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain or COVID or sin anymore. That day is just around the corner. Christian, you will outlast every one of the trials that you face. 
So stand firm. Come to God. Strengthen your heart. You're on the home stretch. The coming of the Lord is at hand. It is the next event in salvation history. And what God promises he will do. Friends, to be patient, it's not easy, is it? If we're going to be patient, we must guard our hearts. But we must also guard our fellowship. Our fellowship as a body, a family of believers. Look at verse, eight, look at verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The command is straightforward. Do not grumble against each other. He's talking to the church. We're tempted to grumble against each other when we're in the midst of a trial. Just imagine a pressure cooker. You ever, you ever seen a pressure cooker or know how it works? You, you turn the thing on, you close the valve at the top, and the, the machine builds up pressure inside. And it builds up and it builds up. And it has a function, but if you, if you don't eventually release the pressure and it keeps building, that thing's going to explode. Under the stress of a trial, friends, when we're wronged, when we're misunderstood, when the frustrations of life begin to pile up more and more and more, that stress can make us feel like we're a living pressure cooker. It's easy to become impatient. It's easy to lose our temper. And if we're not careful to open up the release valve and spew out venom and sin with our mouth, grumbling against each other. And sadly, in reality, we often explode on those that we love, those who are closest to us, those who are family. And the result of those venomous words can ruin the relationship that we need the most. Friends, one of the reasons that James calls us to not grumble against one another is because we need each other. When we're going through hard times, when we're navigating our way through life, we need each other. 1 Timothy 3, 2 kind of gives a pattern that is all throughout the New Testament. Paul says, we sent Timothy to you to strengthen you and to encourage you in the faith. You can almost hear Paul saying, we sent Timothy to establish your hearts, to strengthen your hearts, to, to establish you in the faith, to encourage you. Why did he send Timothy? Because we need Timothy. We need each other. If, if someone is weary or discouraged as a Christian, and we, we get discouraged as Christians, if we're, if we're hurting or lost or confused as Christians... We need a brother or a sister to call on us, to help carry the burden, to pray, or to read Scripture out loud to us. Now listen, you might hear that call and, and, and think, well, I'm not a biblical counselor. I don't know what to do. That's okay. You don't, you don't always need to know what to say. Sometimes the best thing for us to do is simply to show up. We don't have to say very much. Job's counselors were doing really well until they opened their mouth. We don't have to say a lot. We just need to be there. We need to be able to weep with those who weep. 
Friends, sometimes we overestimate what we can fix with our words and our ideas, and we underestimate what we can do simply by showing up, by listening through the powerful ministry of presence. Friends, this this ministering to each other has been difficult through the pandemic. Uh, What used to be a simple thing, show up to church, is now complicated. Look around. You're sitting in folding chairs with masks on your face. Like, simple things have become complicated things. And the frustrations that have come with 2020 and and all that we're going through have, have often left us with short fuses. It's left us feeling like little pressure cookers. But again, I'm going to say it, this is when we need each other the most. Church, we're family. Over and over, four times in this text, James says brothers, 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 brothers and sisters. He's he's, he's using family language to remind us that we're family, a spiritual family. Family cares for each other. Family bears up with each other. They, They help establish each other's hearts in the Lord when someone's faith gets shaky. And friends, Christians' faith gets shaky sometimes. That's why we need each other. I love what Psalm 62 verse 8 says. Trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 62, verse 8? He's saying, we open up the pressure, we're pressure cookers, but we open up the pressure valve appropriately by praying. God knows you're a pressure cooker. He says, open it up. Come to me and pray. Let it out. Pour out your heart to me. God does not want your fake put together Okay, I'm all is good, Lord. No, he wants your bloodshot eyes from crying all night. I don't know what to say, pouring out heart prayers. Because if that's where you're at, that's what he wants. He wants you, he wants your heart. So friends, if you're trying to pray and you feel too weary to pray, too perplexed to know what to pray, that's why we need each other. We call a friend, we call another member of the church and say, I can't do it, I know I gotta pray. I feel the pressure building up. I'm praying, but it's just like words off the ceiling. Can you pray for me? Can you pray with me? Can you, lead? Can you pray over me? Can you open up the Bible and just read to me? Because I, I can't focus. That's what friends do. That's what family does. That's how we keep going. It's how we remain patient for the harvest. Friends, if we're going to have hope in difficult days, we must be patient for the harvest, but we also, number two, must be steadfast for the blessing. That's the second point we see in verses 10 through 12. We must be steadfast for the blessing. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, when you, James has used the word patience, and he's using the word steadfastness. And when you compare the words patience and steadfastness, there's actually an overlap in meaning. And that's clear because in verses 10 and 11, James puts patience and steadfastness in parallel. 
So there's an overlap in meaning there. But there's also a distinction between those two words. If, if, if patience is the God-given ability to keep our cool so we don't blow up under a trial, steadfastness is the God-given ability to bear up under the weight of difficulty. Instead of giving up, growing complacent, walking away from the Lord, becoming bitter, the steadfast person keeps trusting God in trials. They keep fighting for faith when it's hard. Now, friends, listen, we've already seen this in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It's tempting for us to adopt the way of the world. It's tempting for us to adopt the values of the world that we live in, to make ourselves friends with the world. And it's tempting because it's a matter of self-preservation. We know that if we go with the flow of the world, the world will love us, or at least leave us alone. And if we go with the flow of the world, we don't have to swim upstream anymore. We can kind of get it in our inner tube and coast down the river. Sounds good, doesn't it? But if we're not ashamed of Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we speak what Jesus said, we should expect conflict. The prophets spoke in the name of the Lord. They spoke the word of the Lord and they had conflict. We too should expect conflict. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so as an example of this, James then turns to the prophets. He says they were speaking in the name of the Lord, but their life, that's a privilege, they were speaking in the name of the Lord, but their life wasn't easy. These prophets knew incredible heartache. Jeremiah also known as the weeping prophet, was hunted down by men who wanted to silence his prophecies that they didn't like. And in the end, they ended up taking Jeremiah and throwing him into an, a cistern filled with mud. And he was imprisoned in that cistern. David was a king. He's also a prophet. He fled for his own life from King Saul who sought to murder him in broad daylight on multiple occasions because of his jealous rage against David. Daniel. Well, Daniel was captured by the enemy. He was deported from his own home and falsely accused and thrown into a pit of lions. Hosea's wife left him to become a prostitute. Why? Because it was part of God's word to his people. <laughs> Friends, when you think about what it means to be blessed, what comes to mind? Do you think of being blessed as the way that James defines it? We consider those who remain steadfast as blessed. These prophets suffered immensely. But with God's help, they remained steadfast in their suffering. They didn't give up. And so we call them blessed. 
Not in the sense, blessed, not in the sense of emotional happiness, like a pasted-on smile, but blessed in the sense of having the approval and the reward of God. This struck me at my friend Tori Galliano's funeral back in September. As we sat together and remembered his life, how he loved God, how he suffered so well, how Tori remained steadfast to the end. I was so encouraged by his life, by his example. I, I wanted to follow Tori's example. He, he, his, his life spurred me on. I want to do that. I want to end well like Tori did. It's also why it's helpful for us to ask each other as members of the church, how did you, how did you become a Christian? What is it that God has done to get you to where you're at today? We, we need those examples of what God has done. We need those, those examples because we instinctively see good examples of God's work in other people's lives of giving steadfastness. We instinctively look at the examples of people like Jeremiah or David or Daniel or Hosea or even Tori. And we see their example as honorable. We want the steadfastness that they had in our lives. We don't want to fizzle out. We want to cross the finish line. We want what they had. Or do we? Let's not romanticize this. Hebrews 11 says that some of these prophets that we're talking about were sawn in two. I don't want to be sawn in two. So is it naive for James to say that these prophets, some who were sawn in two, are blessed? How can we know that being steadfast in that type of suffering is worth it? What is the basis? What right does James have to say that people who suffered like that and remain steadfast to the end, what right does he have to say that they are blessed? Well, Job, J- J- uh, James answers that with the example of Job in verse 11. Look at verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Friends, if you're unfamiliar with the the life of Job, let me encourage you at some point to read about his life. You can read about his life in the book of Job. It's the book right before Psalms in the Old Testament. In short, what happened in Job's life is that God allowed everything to be taken away from Job. His home, his health, his career, his family, his reputation. He's devastated. In the end, we see him on the ground, scraping his sores with a piece of pottery. And then for the next 37 chapters, we watch as Job wrestles with his suffering. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why me? And as the reader, we we actually have an omniscient perspective. We get to see what's going on behind the scenes. We know why, but Job doesn't get to see what we see. 
Job's left in the dark. The only thing that God says to Job is, Job, listen, I'm God and you're not. And you need to trust me. That's the answer he gets to his why question. And here's the thing. Job does trust God. Through it all, he never abandoned his faith. He clung to God by faith until the very end. And when you read Job, you're going to see him complaining and wrestling. And and I think that's helpful because it's a reminder that Job had to wrestle for faith. He had to fight for faith, just like we have to. He's He's not a stellar example because he just kind of coasts through. He has to fight for faith. His friends made his endurance, his patience, even more difficult because they foolishly tried to explain to Job, well, we know this is why you're suffering, when they had no idea why he was suffering. And at one point, his own wife comes to him and says, listen, Job, this is enough. Just end it. Curse God and die, she said. They weren't being helpful. (laughs) But in the midst of heartbreaking loss, Job never stopped trusting God. He couldn't see. Job could not see what God was doing. Therefore, he had to let God be God. He had to trust that God's purposes for him, which he couldn't see, were good. He had to believe that following God was worth it even when it hurt like crazy. Now, in the end, if you know the story, Job has his health and his home restored. But before his home and his health are restored, Job makes it clear for us that the reason that trusting God was worth it for him was not because of the stuff. It was worthwhile because he came to know God more fully. Job says this in the end to God. This is Job 42. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Before his trial, he'd heard about God. He knew a few things, but now he sees God. Now he knows God more fully. Friends, when we're suffering, when pain lingers on for a long time, when our hope is under attack, that's when we're tempted to believe the worst about God. You hear the whisper in your heart, how is God good in this? God's cold. God must be indifferent. God must be cruel. God must be unloving to allow this to happen in my life. And we begin to ask ourselves, is, this, is it worth it? Christians ask questions like that. But Job is a shining example for us that in the midst of his pain, in the midst of being in the dark as to why, why, Job experienced peace. 
Job came to a place of contentment because he was able to worship. His peace and his contentment were not based on the knowing why. His peace and his contentment were based on his worship of God. That's what verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11 affirms. When James says, You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What is the purpose of the trial that you're going through? Well, in one sense, we have to say, I don't know. We don't always know what God's up to. Sometimes we're left in the dark. But here's what we can know. That every one of God's purposes for us comes from a heart that is compassionate and merciful. The, the translation, the ESV, of compassionate, the Greek word, it doesn't capture the Greek word. Literally, if you translate the word that James uses there, it's the Lord is full of compassion. He's very, very compassionate. He's, he's stretching for language to show how compassionate that God is. So he's saying it's not that God is compassionate in a few of the things that he does. James is saying, no, no, this is who God is. This is God's heart. God is full of compassion and mercy. That means everything he does, that all his purposes for you, even in your pain, are his compassion and his mercy for you. Church, he loves you. He cares about you. He knows what's going on in your life. Our God is good. And so we can trust him. Even in the dark. That's the lesson of Job. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I understand how hearing this might be hard to believe. So let me just point you to one of the greatest evidences of, or proof of God's goodness and trustworthiness. Job's a great example. A better example is Jesus. The reality of God's goodness and his trustworthiness becomes clearer when we begin to see how bad we are. Each of us, the Bible says, has rejected God as king. We've, 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 we've pushed away his good rule over our lives so that we can define right and wrong for ourselves, so that we can do what we want when we want. But this rebellion is no small matter. The Bible talks about this rebellion as sin, as tyranny against our creator. And because God is good, he doesn't just ignore wickedness or sweep our evil under the carpet with a wink of the eye. God is good and he will judge all sin, including mine and yours. And James says this judgment is near. James 5 verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. His hand is on the doorknob. Here's the good news. The judge who stands at the door is Jesus. He's also the one who came for our salvation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, I pray that you see God's 
goodness in this. Jesus did not come because we were basically good people who needed a little tune-up and deserved God's help. No, 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 that's not, that's not true. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were spitting in his face, thumbing our noses at him in our rebellion, while we were those sinners, Christ died for us. Life can be painful. Life often does not make sense. Not every one of our questions will be answered, but God has made this clear. He's made who he is crystal clear. He is good, and he is trustworthy, and the greatest evidence of his goodness and his trustworthiness is Jesus Christ. So friends, turn from your sin. Look to Christ. Turn away from your sin, away from your self-reliance, and trust in Christ today, and you will receive his compassion. You will receive his mercy. But you've got to come to him. If you refuse to come to him, that compassion and his mercy will be his judgment of you. Trust in him. He is full of compassion and mercy. First Baptist, there is blessing that comes from steadfastness. But I think once again, just as he did in verse 9, James ends with this call to guard our mouths in order to preserve that blessing. We can undo the blessing with sinful speech, and so he warns us about that in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, we've got we to gotta move one of, the, one of the obvious questions out of the way right away. Does James' command mean that we shouldn't take an oath in court to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? No. If you read the New Testament, you'll find the Apostle Paul taking oath. Jesus himself testified under oath in Matthew 26. It's okay to take vows or to make oaths when you get married or when you join a church. That's, that's not what James is talking about. One of the ways that we know what James is talking about is by noting the similarity between what he's saying here in verse 12 and what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. What Jesus is, is, is after when he's talking about oaths is this practice of making statements that appear binding. I promise I'm going to do it. I swear on heaven I'm going to do it. But we actually are really careful with our wording in order to leave a loophole to get us out and an escape hatch so that we can get out if we don't like it. That way, if the things get tough, if they get difficult, we have an escape hatch and we don't sin by not keeping our word. That's what James is addressing. That's what Jesus is addressing. Speech that makes us look committed, but really it's just a facade. Again, that fits the context of what James is saying, because when life is painful, that's when we're most likely to try to get out of our commitments or make rash vows. God, get me out of this. I promise I'll never sin again. Or, or, or life begins to squeeze us and we just want independence so we can have more freedom. 
you know, Katie and I have been married for 15 years, but imagine that Katie was so doubtful of everything that I said to her that the only way I could get her to believe me is if I added, Katie, listen, I mean it. I swear to God. And, and if, the only way I could get her to believe me is if I said that. If that was the, the extent of our relationship, you would be right to be concerned. <laughs> because that would be evidence that she, there, there's not a trust there, that she's not trusting me. My yes is not yes. My no is not no. In a healthy relationship where people trust each other, they assume the best in each other. They assume that what that person is saying is true. They assume that their yes is yes and their no actually means no. It's also why it's important for us if we're going to have these trusting relationships that we are very careful to always tell the truth. So what, is, what does verse 12 then mean for us real practically? I think in short, it means that we keep our word. Psalm 15 verse 4 talks about keeping our word even if it hurts. So if I tell you I'm going to be there, if I check yes on the Evite, I don't cancel or flake out when something better comes up. I keep my word. Or if you make a marriage vow, verse 12 means that you keep that marriage vow even if marriage is hard. And friends, if you're struggling in your marriage, let me just say, don't go through that difficulty alone. Get help. Talk to a pastor for help about how you can, with God's help, keep your vows to your spouse. If you're a church member, when you join a church, you, you actually make a covenant with that church family. And, and so when you're a church member, verse 12 means that you keep your promise to care for each other. That we, we keep our covenant with God's help because we're a family. We don't just get up and leave when something's difficult. We talk. We seek to understand each other. We forgive. We bear up with one another in love. Because when life is difficult, that's when we need each other the most. I like how one writer puts it. Patience is not quite the same thing as waiting. We wait because we must. We have no choice in the matter. Patience is our gift to our Heavenly Father while we wait. In our waiting, patience chooses to declare, God, I love you more than my longed-for answer to these hard circumstances. We look into the darkness around us, and patience chooses to believe what God says about himself in his word. And we rest in the knowledge that God does see, God does care, despite how it appears in our present situation. Patience is the composure that helps us pause long enough to ask, what is it about God I don't understand in this situation? Why am I so restless? Why isn't God enough for me here? Patience takes us deeper into the heart of God. Patience, create, patience creates a sense of expectancy for tomorrow because of God's goodness. Which, by the way, he has stored up for those who fear him. Psalm 31, verse 19. So church, when hope is under attack, look to the end. Today may be painful, today may be dark, 
but God has made the end clear. He's turned the lights on about the end in order to strengthen our hope today. Jesus, church, Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. The trumpet might sound before this sermon is done. And that's good news. His coming is near. He will come as He promised. And He will make all things new when He takes His seat on His throne. He will right every wrong. And so with God's help, we can remain patient and steadfast today. Instead of grumbling against each other, we can lean on each other. We can follow the examples of those who've gone before us and remain steadfast to the end. And together, as we meet together, as we are right now, as we call each other throughout the week, as we pray for each other, together, we can strengthen our hearts in the Lord. Because as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Let's pray.